Our God and our King, we thank you again for giving us breath this morning. We thank you for the ability that each of us had to get up out of bed, to get ready and come here to be with your people on your day in your house. Father, it's a gift. The air we breathe, the eyes that we see with, the ears that we hear with, the heart that's beating is a gift. All things come from your hand, and we are grateful to you, our Creator, for being merciful to us, giving us life. Lord, the greatest creation to us is what you do in the heart through the finished work of Christ. And we pray that we would be in awe of that a little bit more today as we study through the conversion of Saul. Holy Spirit, sweep us up into the great mystery that is God reconciling the world to himself through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. May we never be arrogant because you have shown us mercy. Father, we pray that this would move us further to being agents of mercy, ambassadors of the grace that comes in Christ. Would you move on us this morning, not just with head knowledge and yes, this is true, no, this is not true, but that it would impact the heart, that we would live here, that we would act based upon a gratefulness, a thankfulness for what you've done for us and in us through Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, we're in chapter 9 of Acts. And last time, in chapter 8, uh, we saw Philip kind of at the tip end of the spear of the mission of the church with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. So we see again a foretaste of the end of the mission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we saw that Ethiopia in the Greco-Roman world was often considered to be the end of the civilized world. It was kind of a, a nod to that. As significant as that event was, it's really difficult to measure the gravity of the conversion of Saul Tarsus. Um, Luke will pick up on the work of Paul through the rest of the book. Uh, we'll see some, the next few chapters, uh, dealing with Peter and Jerusalem church. But after that, it is all about Paul and his mission to the ends of the earth. Paul's conversion, this passage, this story, is retold three times in Acts. It's a significant event to Luke. It's a significant event to the life of the church and the history of the church. And as we read this account, I want you to be thinking about what caused this change? What happened here? Well, last time we saw Saul, 
What was he doing? Persecuting. He was persecuting. And how did Luke describe him in 8.3? How did Luke describe him? He was ravaging the church like a wild animal. The language is, is, is bringing up that picture of like a wild animal. Um, let's look at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. All right, starting in verses 1 and 2, how does Luke describe Saul? He's picking up where he left off in 8.3 with what's going on with Saul. This interlude with Philip and the mission to the Gentiles, we see that there, and he picks right back up. How does he describe Saul? What is he doing? He's on a genocidal mission. He's on a genocidal mission. He's breathing out threats and murder, right? He's ready to kill. And he thinks he's doing good, right? He thinks he's working as a good Jew to stamp out this cult that's arisen in Judaism. This worship of a man right his view is Jesus was a man who is not God and they're worshiping him as God and this is a blasphemous lie that they're bringing into our, our now why does that matter it's a free society right why does that matter it threatens their way of life it threatens their way of life it takes away their power takes away their power so there's some political stuff going on theologically why does that matter if what they're saying is blasphemy and they're tolerating it in their nation, where does that leave Israel? They've been in the wrong. They've been under judgment for centuries because of what? Allowing blasphemy. Allowing blasphemy, idolatry to go on, right? So they're under judgment for that. And in their mind, will only be redeemed, will only be delivered if we stay true to the law given to us by Moses, which is, you will have no other gods before you, right? So he thinks he's doing good. I've got, I'm going to be, I'll be the man to restore Israel, to, to get it back to the pure obedience of the law. I, the Hebrew of Hebrews, we'll see him discuss of himself at that time later, um, I'll do it. So he takes up the role of chief arresting officer 
for the Sanhedrin. And he's pretty intent about it. How do we know that he's intent about it? What's he doing? Does he stay in Jerusalem? No. He gets letters from the Sanhedrin to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, Damascus at that time had, had kind of a history of the hotbed of heresy. Uh, it, it had, there was uh, some cult uprisings or whatever that, were, that, had gone up, uh, that had gone on there. And so it was kind of known as a, as a, as a place where if you're a heretic, that's where you're going to land because you're, it's a little, you're, you, know, you have some, some cushion. So he had begun this persecution in Jerusalem. The Christians flee, a lot of them flee, the Hellenistic Christians do, and he knows that some of them have probably gone to Damascus. And so he goes to the Sanhedrin for letters. These are not like your typical, you know, we want to get some uh, leaker who has left the country and is now living in asylum somewhere else, so we send letters of extradition to one nation to bring back a criminal so we can prosecute him here, right? That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the Sanhedrin may have had some authority in Damascus, but most likely what the letter was was an introductory letter. This is our agent. Would you be so kind as to provide him some support while he stamps out this nonsense in our midst? So it's just kind of a, an introductory operating under the authority and the blessing of the Jewish council. He's going, <clears throat> he's going to Damascus. And he uses the term, the way. Where would he have gotten that? What is this way? It's an odd way to talk about it. Jesus, always a good answer in Sunday school. Where, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Mathematically, that means no man comes to the Father but by me. And so they called it the way. The true way, uh, you'll see it referenced in, in Acts several, several times this way. Um, Luke actually uses it six times in Acts. So he starts on Damascus, and Damascus is a good six-day journey by foot. And he's got this rage, ravaging the church, this rage going on, breathing out threats and murder. What happened? What happened? Jesus jumped him. Jesus jumped him on the road. What, what happens? He, he gets, there's a light, and it knocks him down. And he chose to follow Jesus. And he says, you know, I've had a free will all my life. I think even though my heart is full of threats and murder, I'm going to choose this light. That sounds like a good idea. What's going on here? Jesus knocks him down with the brightness. Now, incidentally, we know in chapter 26 of Acts, that this is about midday. So how bright does that light have to be? It's pretty dang bright light. Pretty, pretty bright. And they live in the desert. So. And they live in the desert, so they got the, you know, they always get the sunshades on all the time. <laughs> so it's a pretty bright light. Knocks him down. Um, what does Saul do? He goes to the ground, and I'm sure that it's in fear, right? But what he hears next, would I, and I'm putting myself in his sandals, would have terrified me. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What? Persecuting you? How would that be possible? I don't, even, I don't even know what this is. I think he knew what this is. I don't even know what this is. How would I persecute you? How would that even be a thing? What does that tell you? That Christ identifies with his church. And that's a theme you see again and again in Paul's letters. Not only in the Gospels, but even expressed in the doctrine of the church through Paul's letters. Christ identifies with his church. Now you hear that after you've been breathing out threats and murder and throwing men and women in prison and agreeing to their sentence of death back in Jerusalem. You hear that. What do you think the response internally is? Oh dear. <laughs> Oops. Yikes. How about a good old-fashioned Old Testament, woe is me? He's on the ground, trembling. The clear identification that Christ has with his church is evident here. You know, that doesn't stop just because the canon is closed. We would do well to remember that. We would do well to remember that and how we treat one another. Um, in Zechariah, the Lord says of his people that he that touches you touches the apple of my eye. We would do well to remember that. What is Saul's response here? What does he call him? Lord. Now, some of the smart guys will say, well, Lord's a common Greek term. Uh, probably he meant sir here. Not knowing, you know, who he is or whatever. I'm not buying that. I think he knew exactly who this was. Lord? I'm sure he assumed it was God, the God of the Old Testament. Right. But don't you think... <laughs> Don't you think? He knew what, how God appeared Himself. Sure, sure. Then this is a this is a similar to other experiences that we've read about in the Old Testament with God appearing Moses uh, to to Isaiah, Jeremiah. So we've seen we've seen this kind of thing before. But I wonder. And again, this is Kevin. This is not. A, this is my opinion. I wonder if he deep down was like. Oh, this is not going to be good. I, I wonder if he knew. Oh, I'm sure he thought it was going to be bad. Yeah. Why are you persecuting me? Is usually not the way you want to hear. A very bright being coming down. Yeah, just it just has all the mar earmark of this it's is the way it started, but not going to down and make it blind. Right. Probably yeah. This is this is not going to be good. So, the next thing he hears confirms or clears up all doubt. Who are you, Lord? What does he say? Jesus. Well, what do you think his response might have been then? What is it? What is his response to that statement? He didn't say a thing. We don't hear him talk in the rest of this exchange. And that's probably a wise move. 
I'm just going to give you a little advice. If you're ever in a situation where a light comes down and the accusation is, why are you persecuting me? It's best just not to speak. And that's what he does. He's on the ground. He's not, uh, he's not speaking. And he's being obedient. I would say obedient from the heart here, right? <laughs> he really wants to stay down. <laughs> so he had been arresting and sentencing Christians to death for their blasphemous lie. They had claimed that Jesus was risen. They had claimed that he was the Lord reigning in glory. And now Saul is witnessing the undeniable truth of those claims. That's a bad day for a persecutor. Or it's a great day. Does Saul say anything else? No. Uh, does Jesus tell him that if he would just take one step toward him, he would then take nine toward Saul? Does he say, I'm not going to violate your free will here because I'm a gentleman? Does he say any of that? He gives him command. He gives him a command. And what's the command? Rise and go to the city. Rise and go to the city. Rise and enter the city. Um, these are not words of invitation, but of command. Saul, the man at large and in charge, lies on the ground. What else has happened to Saul? What, what else is going on with him? He's blind. Rise and go to the city. How's he going to get there? The men who are with him are going to have to hold his little hand and escort him to the city. Would you consider that to be a humbling thing or a pride-inducing thing? This is humbling. He's got to be led to the city that he was going to arrest a bunch of Christians, haul them back to Jerusalem, and sentence them to death. And now he's being led by the hand after coming face to face with the risen Christ. This is a picture of brokenness and helplessness. He's totally powerless being led by the hand. And what does Luke tell us is Saul's response to all of this. How does he spend his time in Damascus? He fasts. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He doesn't eat for three days. Why do you think that is? What's going on? Why would he fast for three days? Well, there, that could be. We're not given that in the text. I, I think if we read the Greek backwards, he's maybe probably, we'd get that. He's probably still shaken up and so he's, scared. So he's still shaken up. Just kind of shock thing, you think? I'm not eating because I'm a little freaked by what just happened. That pit in my stomach just can't. What have I done? You know, that comes crashing down. What have I done? What have I been doing? How could I not have seen this? All right, let's look at verse 10. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, uh, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How about that for a job description? So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. What is going on here? You got a vision, another vision, and then a vision within a vision. I mean, who is driving this train, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Who is driving this train? God. Jesus is driving this train. This is not an epiphany on the road to Damascus. This is not, you know, the more I think about Isaiah 53, that's probably correct. I probably need not do this anymore. This is not some, gosh, I really, I feel guilty because I've murdered a bunch of people and I probably should just radically transform. I, I need to turn over a new leaf. This is conversion. A radical conversion. The, the, the stuff that was on his eyes, it says scales in ESV, it, it literally um, it, it has idea of flakes. Like a thin... Just flakes that fall off his eyes. And Ananias, incidentally, uh, some people say that Ananias resided in Damascus long before the refugees flooded um, the place. Uh, and we're told, we're told that, that he has a, a second vision um, here. And, and there's no doubt that it's Jesus speaking to Ananias from, from 14 to 16. So how does Ananias initially respond to Christ calling his name? What does he say? Here I am. Here I am. What is, does that remind you of anything, Wednesday night guys? Samuel. Samuel. That's the first thing I thought of. Samuel. He's not the only one, by the way. We see, we see uh, Moses do this at the burning bush. We see Isaiah do this, Jeremiah. That's a, that's a response of complete submission to the will of God, right? You, you see that there. And, and, and Ananias takes on that mantle of, here I am. What a great response. Till we get to Saul. Right? 
consider it. Yeah, and then, and then. Yeah, about this guy. You sure about that? There's a little less here I am going on in that response whenever he says Saul, right? Uh, he doesn't refuse, but what does that tell you about Saul? He's got street cred. He's known among the people of the church to be feared, right? This is a guy who brokers no deals. He's going to arrest you, punish you, and end this thing. There, there, is, no, there is no middle ground with him. Are you sure? Ananias is asking Jesus, what are we talking about here? Really? He doesn't refuse, but it shows us something of the fear the Christians had of Saul. And it confirms for us that what we're reading about here is a radical transformation. What does Jesus tell Ananias of Saul's future? He calls him something. Yes, that's, that's the job description. He chosen call, vessel. Chosen vessel. Now, notice that he doesn't say, Saul has used his free will to do a complete 180 from persecuting the church to putting himself out there as an object of persecution for the church. Right? He doesn't say, kudos to Saul, he came to his senses. Paul is a chosen instrument. And it's going to be revealed in the amount of persecution that he suffers. And we'll see that persecution begin before we finish this chapter. Paul's a chosen instrument. And we see this later in Paul's writings concerning his own conversion. In Galatians 1.15 he says, But when he who had set me apart because of my awesomely awesome faith that I exercised on my own will... No. When he set me apart before I was born... And who called me by His grace. Here's the question. Could Paul, could Saul, have said no to Jesus here? Appreciate the light show. This is very entertaining. I, I could deal with being blind. I got guys to lead me. I'm not doing this. Could he have said no? No. I mean, yes. Just like somebody can say no to a firefighter pulling them out of a burning down house. Is that what we understand from the description of the New Testament about what happens to the heart? It's it's like he he had to make the choice to do it, but since he's been uh, converted, like it's that's the choice he made. Christ makes you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> yeah. you, would you say the offer would be irresistible? Yes. I don't think you could have said no here. The heart's changed. The heart that was breathing out threats and murder and disobedience to God, and he'd say this in Romans 8, 7, the, the mind of the flesh is set on things of the flesh. It cannot obey God. It can, indeed, it cannot obey God. It will not and it, because it cannot. For him to even 
quietly be led by the hand of the city is an act of trust in the risen Christ because he said go. He wouldn't have done that but for a transformed heart. Um, it was changed from a heart that hated Christ to a heart that hated his rebellion against Christ. And is Ananias obedient to Christ? Ultimately he is. Well, he went. He started with, mm, but, he, but he went, right? A little, yeah, more than Jonah, I think is a good, a good <laughs> statement there. A little reluctant, but yeah, he, he, he went. And instead, in his own heart was a little bit transformed towards Saul, wasn't it? What did he call him? Brother. Now think about that. Here's a terrorist who Christ says, go, put your hands on him, I'm going to heal him and give him the Holy Spirit. And he greets him. I've, I've chosen him as an instrument, this terrorist. And he goes to him and says, Brother Saul. How can he do that? How can he do that? What basis does he have to make such a claim? Well, God told him that he was chosen. The testimony of Christ, I've chosen him. Yeah. Right? I've, I've changed him. And so he trusts again, in Christ, that what he said was true. Brother Saul. So what happens then? Puts his hands on him, prays for him, and what, what happens? These flaky, scaly things that were on his eyes that were a picture of what? Okay, interesting term. Yes? Um, a change, a veil is over his heart, which is a term that he uses later in his letters. They've, they're veiled. They can't see the glory of Christ. This conversion of Saul is echoed again and again and again and again in his letters. He uses this imagery over and over again. Um, but before he goes to the synagogues, incidentally, how do we know he's uh, filled with the Holy Spirit? Does it? Does he? I mean, some kind of physical thing go on? He's baptized. Benny Hinn appears out of nowhere. And <laughs> how do we know he's baptized? So there's a, again a public expression of an inward change. Um, how do we know? What does he begin doing? Really? He goes to <laughs> the very people that he had letters mm -hmm. from the Sanhedrin with authority to pull Christians out to witness to them about, what does he say? Telling them that, what? He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And that's really the only time this title is used in Acts. And it's used by the terrorist. Why is that significant? He's, he's committing blasphemy according to what he would have prior defined as blasphemy. If it's not true, he's just condemned himself. Right? Mm -hmm. And yet he's going to these synagogues. 
boldly proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. But before he goes, he spends time with the disciples. And the smart guys think he was probably getting instruction. I mean, he, this is a guy who's very well versed in the Old Testament. He knew his Bible. But he had to get his hermeneutics straight. If you get Christ right, you get your hermeneutic right. <laughs> right? So that's what, that's what that time they believe was spent probably getting instruction in Christ. He's still a new convert and needed further teaching about Christ before he could strike out on his own witness. But it didn't take long, did it? I mean, he is there boldly. All right. Would a monotheistic Jew ever say that Jesus is the Son of God unless he was convinced it was true? No. That's blasphemy. What's the response of the people in the synagogue? How do they respond to this? Don't you have letters? They're amazed, they're confounded, they're surprised. This is not the guy that... What does that tell you about the change? We've got the testimony of Saul, breathing threats and murder, that stops. We got the testimony of Ananias saying, you sure? That becomes different, Brother Saul. And we've got these guys in the synagogue saying, isn't this the guy that was sent to us to... That's different. He's preaching Christ, the Son of God. This is a radical transformation. And it says that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. That word proving there is a, in Greek means putting together or assembling. The idea is, or joining. The idea is that he's putting together an argument from the Old Testament showing that Jesus fit the bill. Alright. This boldness is a demonstration of the working of the Spirit in, in Paul. Do you ever find yourself thinking, man, Paul was so hardened that Jesus had to show up? Right? I'm glad I wasn't that stubborn. <coughs> when the New Testament talks of conversion, going from rebelling against Christ to trusting Him, um, it, it uses mainly, and I'm not aware of any, any others, but mainly three metaphors. We've talked about this a little bit before. What are the three metaphors? Do you remember? Death to life. Death, so resurrection, new life. Old man, new man. Old man, new man. Again, a, a, a new life kind of idea. Blind and Blind and sight. That's familiar from this. What else? Heart of stone, transformed to heart of flesh. Again, a new life idea there. You must be born again. So new birth, new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The main metaphors that are used are new birth, new creation, new life. It's new life is described heart, stone to flesh, you know, blindness to sight. Um, Jesus says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Peter, picking up on that theme in 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says again in verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. James 1.18 says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Whose will? God's will. And why does He say that? If a baby is going to be born... Does it take on an active role in that process? It's out in the nether sphere. I want to be born, I want to be born, I want to be born. Those look like two good people I like to be born to. Is that what a baby does? No. Action is required and the baby is passive in the whole event. It's only active when it comes out and starts screaming its head off and doesn't ever stop. Always active. But until then, that's not true. It, does, it gets better. Uh, the, 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 the action of birth, the baby is passive through the whole thing. So when the new, writers of the New Testament talk about, when Jesus says you must be born again, he's saying, you can't control this. In fact, he'd later say the spirit blows where it wills. It's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. You can't control that. But you must be born again. You have to be. There's no getting to God. There's no even seeing the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Uh, new creation. We've already, we've already hinted at it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, when the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, in the darkness and the void, the universe is out in the nether sphere going, I want to be created, I want to be created, I want to be created. Because, you know, nothing can do that. Nothingness is, is all about action. I, is that what happens? No. The universe, let there be light, is an active statement by what Paul later tells us, or, or John tells us, is the, the agent of creation, Christ himself. He's acting. It's coming through him. It's not the world saying, well, we've had some dust here for a long time. It'd really be cool if we kind of come together and explode and see what happens. No, it's God doing that. It's a, it's a creative act. And that's the, that is the metaphor that Paul uses about what goes on in the human heart when it goes from hating God, hating Christ, to loving God, loving Christ. It's a creative act. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You can't do it externally. New life. Romans 6, 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Lazarus is in the tomb. 
and in his stillness and coldness of death, really deep down inside, if I can just take that one step, Christ will meet me with nine. No. He's dead. And so are you. In trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, the best action you could have was to follow the course of this world. Following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's action, but it's dead action. It's following a stream. It's floating along with everybody else over the cliff. You are dead, but God, being rich in mercy, it's His action. There's no boasting here. There's no patting ourselves on the back. There's no comparing ourselves to the others who didn't make that better choice. There's no boasting here. There is hope that the God of mercy that transformed your heart will also be merciful in transforming the heart of that person you think will never believe. Jesus, have you, you know who the Saul is? There's hope there. You can't change that person. You can't reach inside and flip a switch. It's not going to happen. You don't have that power. And thank God I don't. I mean, right? If their ultimate destiny, heaven or hell, depended on my awesomely awesome persuasion, they're hosed. It's not going to happen. I'm really not that good, and neither are you. They're dead. We're called to be faithful witnesses, right? We're not called to be um, God. It's His creative act. It's His new birth. It's His transforming from death to life, not ours. We're called to be faithful. He doesn't command us to be perfect in our witness, but faithful in our witness. He does the heavy lifting. He's the creator, not us. Thank God it's not ultimately up to you because you, like me, would screw it up. There's great confidence in boldly proclaiming who Christ is and what He's done because it doesn't depend on you, but depends on God who shows mercy. And you see this kind of language again and again. And this is a profound event in the history of the church because it colors 13 of the letters that we have from Paul on how God moves someone from death to life. What does that look like? What does that take? And he works off of his own experience of conversion again and again and again. And just because you didn't see a light and didn't have scales on your eyes, uh, it doesn't make it any less miraculous. Do we understand that? Sure, he chose Paul. I mean, look what he did. I mean, I, you know... I'm a nobody, so I'm just going to use my free will. No. It takes a creative act. This is one of my favorite statements on this from Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Christ. You think he was referring to something there? Humbling thankfulness is what we need to be seeing in our hearts because of this. There's no pride here. We use words like election. That's not a chest-thumping thing. And using the language of that doesn't make you saved either. The heart transformation involves action, looking differently, looking like a new creation, not just being able to spout off stuff from the confessions. Although those are great, I love them. They're good teaching tools, they're good learning tools, but we've got to be looking different. Romans 6, and we won't go there today, but Romans 6 goes through a lot of that what a new creation looks like. So there's homework for you. Any questions, any comments? Massive thing, yeah. Hey, that just kind of struck me, I guess, that he, uh, Saul goes to Damascus and uh, three days he's not eating us or drinking. Hmm. Uh, do you think that's kind of a picture like Jesus was buried for three days. That's certainly an interesting analogy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. Because, uh, you know, God uses real events mm. to picture things. Sure. So I'm just wondering, yeah. maybe that's... Maybe. Maybe that, that was a part, of the, part of the picture there. See, I, I was thinking the same thing, actually, but with Jonah. I was thinking maybe there's some typological pictures that's throughout the scriptures. And again, he will refer to this as his call to call to be an apostle. So there's a, a, some additional things going on here. Over and above the miracle of conversion is also the calling to be an apostle. Um, a, a, it's similar to what we see with the prophets being called in the Old Testament. The difference was, when the prophets were called, they generally were either Samuel, who was a fairly young kid, who was a pretty decent chap, uh, or, or, you know, um, Isaiah, who was considered to be a, a holy man, who fell down and said, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Really, that's what you're going to go to? You're, that you speak bad thing? I mean, I'm, I've got a, a huge list that I would be saying before I even got to lips, but that's what he came up with. So the difference here is that Saul is demonstrably this wicked guy. Moses murdered, true, but it was in response to protecting. I mean, there's kind of a divine judgment thing, I guess you could. And, and he didn't know it was because the law had been given. Yeah, you know, murder's wrong. Yeah. No. Uh, anyway. Um, anyway, so, so there's a demonstrable wicked, wickedness in Saul breathing out rage and breathing out murder and, and threats to he's quietly led by the hand blinded and humbled it's a, it's it's but it's the same kind of idea of light uh, christophany you know on the ground i'm a, he didn't even say whoa i'm undone he just keeps his mouth you know shut after he says who are you <laughs> you know it's kind of a but that but that's also going on here with his with his conversion is this calling Anything else? All right. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, would you help us to never be apathetic about the work you've done in our heart? Would you remind us again and again that but for the grace of God, we would be breathing out threats and murder against your people? We might not march with signs, but we would be dismissive and derisive, hating you and your creation, seeking ways to bend it to our will rather than submit to what you've created and how it should run in your sovereignty. Father, would you help us to see our brothers and sisters in Christ also as new creatures, not perfect, in process, knocking off the dust and dirt and grime of the old man, but there in the soil, a new tree planted by you because of the work of Christ. Remind us again and again of the identity that Christ has with his people. If we persecute his people, we are persecuting him. If we malign his people, we are maligning him. If we sin against the little ones, be better for a millstone to be hung around our neck and cast in the sea than to see that face of displeasure because of our action toward your little ones. Would you make us very conscious of that? We want to act with grace and thankfulness and humility, knowing that you are the risen king. Christ is on the throne. And he is building for himself a people from all over. There are no boundaries. There are no barriers. And that he is building in them the image of himself to display to the cosmos. Thank you for your great mercy in making us a part of that. May we be who we are already in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sorry. Okay, sorry.